0: Hey friends, welcome back to The Journal Feed. My name is Dr. Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We're trying to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible, and so we're trying to spoon-feed you the latest research. Now, let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we've covered from this past week. First off, we had scribes. They sound like a great idea, but are they? After that, a better way around, beta-lactam allergies. Then a few tips on preventing post LP headaches. Following that, we had treating resistant bugs with long names. And then finally, the other side of the heart score coin. Maybe not the wonder child we always kind of expect it to be. So this is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the Gilded, Nicholas Sryka, Andy Hogan, Karen Wolf, Thomas Davis, and Clay Smith. So, without further ado, we have the first article which was titled The Effect of Medical Scribes in Emergency Departments A Systematic Review out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. The favorite part of no one's job is writing notes on their patients. So why not try to just hire someone to do it for you? At least for the initial visit. Would that make doctors more efficient, faster, most of all happier? It would, right? There's some tenuous data out there that actually support that this is true. But how good are scribes really? Like, are they good enough for us to recommend that everyone be using them? These authors did a systematic review through electronic databases from 2010 to 2019 to find 20 studies for this review. Two of these studies were RCTs and the other were just observational trials. Notably, 12 of these studies came from just two institutions, one from the US and one from Australia. By way of the garbage in, garbage out principle, Fifteen of these studies were deemed to be at critical risk for bias, and the last five were still at moderate risk for bias, so not amazing. The results of the review itself, given the limitations, were low certainty. There was an association between scribes and a small increase in the number of patients seen per hour and the RVUs generated when scribes were present, as well as a slight decrease in the length of stay. The effect of scribes on things like clinical efficacy, access to healthcare, satisfaction of patients or physicians, and even financial productivity lack enough high-quality data to make any real conclusions. There's also little to no evidence in the past 10 years on things like the cost to develop and implement scribe programs, or even on the quality of the documentation. Overall, the review concluded that more information is needed on the topic before anything like widespread implementation can be recommended. In a spoonful, in-person scribes have weak evidence, showing them to improve the number of patients seen per hour and RVUs generated, but the effect is small and the data is poor. Other than that, not enough good studies have been done in the past 10 years to draw real, meaningful conclusions. Then we have the second article, which was titled The Impact of an Antibiotic Side-Chain-Based Cross-Reactivity Chart, Combined with Enhanced Allergy Assessment Processes for Surgical Prophylaxis Antimicrobials in Patients with Beta-Lactam Allergies out of the Journal of Clinical Infectious Diseases. It's a lot to ask for patients to know whether or not their reaction to penicillins was an intolerance or a true allergy to these antibiotics. As a result, perhaps also due to some poor detective work on some people's parts, a lot of patients get that label of a beta-lactam allergy. In the emergency department, this leads to a lot of antibiotic substitutions because we're not always going to have the time to really dig in and figure out whether or not it's a true allergy and then risk testing that allergy. Instead of a full substitution away from beta-lactams though, we could be using dissimilar beta-lactams instead which have a very low rate of cross-reactivity, less than 1%. So why don't we do that more? Well, education. Education to the rescue, as always. This was a single-center retrospective before and after study that found that implementing formalized allergy history taking and the use of a cross-reactivity chart for beta-lactams in the context of a pre-surgery infection prophylaxis program, so not in the emergency department, unfortunately, But all this led to significantly more use of structurally dissimilar beta-lactam antibiotics instead of alternate antibiotic classes. This means that you could look up in this chart which antibiotic the patient was allergic to and then see which beta-lactam antibiotic you could use despite that allergy, thus keeping our antibiotic selections cheap and appropriate. The rates of dissimilar beta-lactam prescriptions, instead of switching antibiotics, rose from 15 to 85% in the study. That's quite a bit. So unless the patient had a confirmed type 2 to type 4 allergy, then safe alternatives were available for all the common beta-lactams. The rates of reactions to these antibiotics was not significantly different in the before or after groups. Though, to be honest, this study was not powered enough to find a difference in adverse events rates. So we're not looking at patient-oriented outcomes, but we are looking at something that's important, and that's proper use of antibiotics. A lot of substitutions were towards IV-only cephalosporins, which isn't going to be useful in emergency department patients, but honestly, the whole program is a nice idea, and I'd love to see something like this implemented in emergency departments in some form. In a spoonful, implementing a standardized process for screening for beta-lactam allergies with the addition of a ready-made substitution chart to guide the use of dissimilar beta-lactams increased using those dissimilar beta-lactams significantly in a pre-surgical setting, thus alleviating the need to use alternative antibiotic classes in many cases. Now that third article titled Preventing Post-Lumbar Puncture Headaches Out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine now although it isn't going to mark a good day for anyone really except maybe medical students if they get to do the procedure lps are frequently done in the emergency department a common consequence of this is post-lp headaches which are reported to occur anywhere from 3 to 33 percent of the time most at-risk patients are young low bmi females who are prone to getting headaches we can do nothing about that if you need an lp you're going to get an lp Let's focus on the things that we can control in order to try to minimize post-LP headaches. This article reviewed the last 20 years of literature on post-LP headaches, and they sought to answer 19 frequently asked questions on the topic. We're not gonna go through all of them, but we're gonna tell you just what you need to know. Which needle should you be using? Always reach for an atraumatic needle. Those are the ones you want, and don't worry, they aren't actually harder to use than any other needle. In terms of your technique, Lateral decubitus position is better. A higher introvertible space is better. And orient the bevel of the needle parallel to the spinal axis. In this case, that would mean pointing it at the floor or the ceiling if your patient is in the lateral decubitus position. So, all these things lower the risk. Difficult taps, higher volumes, and aspiration of CSF do not have any association with a higher risk for post-LP headaches. The jury is still out on needle diameter and stylet reinsertion, but these are pretty easy to just throw in there for good measure, and there's some evidence of them working in children, so the theory's pretty good. What about what you can do after the LP to reduce the risk? IV fluids and caffeine don't help, sorry. Staying in bed also doesn't help, it may actually even be worse, so mobilization is better. There's no medication that's going to help either, but hopefully something will pan out in the next few years. That'd be nice and pretty easy. In a spoonful, we covered a few evidence-based tips on reducing the chances of post-LP headaches. Use an atraumatic needle in a patient in the lateral decubitus position. Try to pick a higher intervertebral space. That might help. And then orient the bevel of the needle parallel to the spinal axis fibers. You're thinking that you're going to open them instead of cut through them. Other things like IV fluids, caffeine, and bed rest aren't likely to help. Next, we have the fourth article, which was titled Infectious Diseases Society of America Guidance on the Treatment of Extended Spectrum Beta Lactamase Producing Enterobacterialis, ESBLE, Carbapenem Resistant Enterobacterialis, CRE, and Pseudomonas aeruginosa with difficult to treat resistance, which we're just going to call DTRP. And all of this was out of the Clinical Journal of Infectious Diseases. I'm going to use just those acronyms because those names are far too long, alright? Now, antibiotic stewardship is really important. I know it doesn't feel like such a big deal sort of on the day-to-day, but it's going to be a lot like global warming. If we all do our part as soon as possible, then we could avoid some really big trouble later on. Already, antibiotic resistance is estimated to cost somewhere around 35,000 lives per year in the U.S. alone. This article only focused on three bugs. Those were, just the acronyms again, ESBLE, CRE, and DTRP. Try not to get too bogged down in the names. If you're wondering why it's not Enterobacteriaceae anymore, then you can check out a link on our blog which links to a cute little comic that'll explain it for you. Of course, try to keep up with your local resistant patterns, that's going to be the most important thing, but these are going to be general recommendations. Now then, they get these long complex names and it's not by accident. Extended spectrum beta-lactamase producing means that ESBLE are resistant to most penicillins, cephalosporins, and aztreonams. But most other things actually work quite well against them, which is nice, unless they have other resistance, but that's another problem. The IDSA actually has a nice list of all the antibiotics which are likely to work, and that can help you out. But infections in and out of the urinary tract all have trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole listed as an option. Bigger guns like Cipro, Levo, and carbapenems should also work, though. As for CRE and DTRP, well, these are usually nosocomial infections, so they're less likely for you to see in the emergency department. They're gram-negatives, and they're often resistant to ertapenem, but not Meropenem. Honestly, you're probably going to be best served by just giving a call to ID and perusing the IDSA guidelines if any of these patients with these bugs pop up in your practice. In a spoonful, for resistant bacteria like ESBLE, non-beta-lactams like trimethoprim, sulfamethoxazole, is a good choice for cystitis and other infections. If you run into CRE or DTRP, you'd probably best look it up and maybe give a call to ID. And that brings us to our last article, which was titled A Methodological Appraisal of the Heart Score and Its Variants Out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Just two weeks ago, I was saying how great the heart score is when you add two-point proponents to it. Heck, we talk about the heart score all the time here. But did you ever stop to think... Where did the heart score even come from? And would it measure up against the Annals of Emergency Medicine's methodological standards for decision rules? I never did, but these guys did, so let's find out what happened. Using the Annals' structured analysis, these authors found a few problems. So, let's talk trash about the heart score for a change. The score itself wasn't actually ever formally derived or validated. It was just a fun mnemonic that assigned arbitrary scores. It was cute, and it was simple, so it caught on. Really though, it doesn't account for that not all risk factors are the same and shouldn't be weighted the same, and it leaves out a lot of important risk factors on top of that. Is it even better than Gestalt, though? Honestly, that one's actually debatable. It would have had to be better, at least in sensitivity, or if it saved you some resources, but it doesn't seem to clearly do either of those things. But at least we all score the same though, right? Like it's good for communication purposes, it's kind of like a GCS. Not even. The kappa scores for the history section were often closer to random than to perfect agreement. Now next, instead of what we usually do, which is praise sensitivities in the 90s, let's take a second to consider that from three meta-analyses, the sensitivity of this test, the heart score, was 96 to 97%. So we're still missing 3 to 4% and the lower bound of the confidence interval on that sensitivity is as low as 93%, which is missing a lot more than I'm comfortable with. It made sense to have a catchy and easy scoring system when you actually had to do this in your head or on the paper in front of you. But now that we're doing all the scores through MDCalc anyways, why not consider something like the EDAC or the TMAC score, which are a little bit more modern and a little bit more sophisticated. In a spoonful, we played devil's advocate today on the heart score to point out some serious weaknesses. Just food for thought, though, since it still seems to outperform a lot of other scores. Alright guys, let's do a quick wrap-up of everything that we learned today. First off, boy, don't scribes sound great. Someone to do all of the writing so that you can do more of the doctoring. But the evidence is weak on how much they actually help. more study might help us, you know, make the difference towards recommending them or trashing them. Second, a standardized approach and a guide for using safe beta-lactam options in patients with possible allergies or intolerances works pretty well at decreasing the use of other alternative antibiotics when you could have used just a dissimilar beta-lactam. This works in the surgical context. I'd love to see if it held up in the emergency department as well. Third, to minimize your patient's risk of post-LP headache, put them in the lateral decubitus position, use a high space if possible, use an atraumatic needle, and point the bevel parallel to their spine, which is going to mean that it's going to be either to the patient left or to the patient right. Next, from the fourth article, watch out for resistant bugs, and be careful how you treat them. Something like ESBLE should be susceptible to trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, but by chance, if your patient has CRE or DTRP originosa, then it's probably a good time to call for help. And then last from the fifth article, the heart score is far from perfect. It came about pretty much arbitrarily, and we don't need something as simple as it is anymore. More sophisticated rules are coming out to help us. Let's hope they can do better than the heart scores that we want to use them. Now then, you've earned them, we offer them, we have CME credits provided through a partnership with Hippo Education, all the details for that, as well as pricing, are on our website at journalfeed.org, where at the very same place you can get access to our newsletter and the blog. If you read the newsletter and listen to the podcast, that's a nice dose of space repetition for you, and that'll help you remember more of these studies. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you.